Hello, and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and with the help of our listeners, we are assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Johnny Greenwood's score to Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 period drama, There Will Be Blood. There Will Be Blood was written for the screen by Paul Thomas Anderson based on the novel Oil by Upton Sinclair. It was produced by Joanne Seller, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Daniel Lupi, and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Andy, what is There Will Be Blood really all about? It follows a wildcat oil prospector named Daniel Plainview at the beginning of the 20th century looking to strike it rich in the California oil boom. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis as Daniel Plainview, Paul Dano as a young preacher in the town where Plainview starts buying up land, Dylan Frazier as his son. It also stars Kevin J. O'Connor, Kieran Hines, and Paul F. Tompkins as the guy who wants to keep him at the meeting. (laughs) That's true. So Daniel Plainview is a ruthless and ambitious businessman. Though he does find the wealth he's seeking, the tension between Plainview and Eli Sunday the Preacher, and indeed the tension between Plainview and the world at large, grows and grows, and it is possible that there will be blood. <laughs> Good enough? Well, I mean, spoiler alert, Andy, there will be blood, <laughs> but otherwise good enough. <laughs> Hey, Andy, you just said that Daniel Plainview was a wildcat oil prospector. Is that a term that you actually learned in reading about this? Yes, that's right. You know, it's a term that was floating around. I'd probably heard it somewhere before, but I'd never had to understand what it meant. But in reading stuff about this movie, yeah, that's what it means. It means someone who digs oil wells in places where there is not yet known to be oil. Just like a wildcat does. Yeah, I don't know if the zoological metaphor is totally sturdy, but it's the term. Uh, anyway, Andy, how are you, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm all right. How are you doing? Yeah, it's just been it's been a little while. I just wanted to check in. It has been a little while this time. Yeah, I'm happy to be back at it. Yeah, me too. We've got a meaty one to be back to, don't you think? Yeah, I've been enjoying kind of surrounding my head with this. Well, I think that's telling already that you use that imagery about it. A lot of this music is the sound of surrounding your head and even like burrowing inside your head. That's kind of the feeling I kept getting. It's mysterious to me, and that's the pleasure. So I'm not sure I could say that I know exactly what relationship it bears to my head. But uh, you tell me. All right. Well, I mean, let's dig into it uh, quick here then. I kind of feel like... A lot of this music, especially in the music that was not originally written for this movie, that came from a pre-existing classical piece that Johnny Greenwood wrote, I think it is kind of intentionally playing at the edge of what it feels like to listen to music, what it even feels like to simply deploy the apparatus of your ears and your auditory cortex to discern sound from background noise. It is inhabiting a liminal space between signal and noise in such a way as to kind of tickle at the very process of hearing 
and understanding, I think by doing that, it kind of makes it feel good to be in your own head, to be thinking interior and introspective thoughts, because it's kind of making your whole brain alive to, you know, what it's even doing there in the first place. I like that a lot. So you're referring to something that I saw Paul Thomas Anderson and Johnny Greenwood both talk about in interviews, which is what Greenwood said his intention was in writing this piece, Mm -hmm. which is called (laughs) Popcorn Superhead Receiver. Yeah. This is a piece that he was commissioned to write for the BBC Orchestra in 2005. Essentially, Paul Thomas Anderson got a bootleg copy of a recording of it, thought it sounded super cool, thought it was cool that the guitarist from Radiohead had done it. Based on that, he called up Greenwood and uh, said, can I use this in the movie and will you do more of it? So Greenwood said in his artistic statement about this piece that it was, at least in part, inspired by experiences he'd had as a child in the car where they'd be listening to music on the car cassette player and then the music would stop and the car noise would continue and he would sort of imagine inside the buzzing and the whirring and all of the white noise of the car he would imagine that he could still hear the music continuing because in all of that noise, there's so many different frequencies and you can sort of impose hallucinated sound onto the noise. And so he basically composed that into a piece, which I think is this passage that is one of the passages you hear in the film that Paul Thomas Anderson used, Mm -hmm. where he has a dense, dense cluster of strings playing. I think it's every quarter tone of an octave and they're just making this noise, which I think represents the car, white noise, and machine noise. And then chords, harmonies, sort of float through it, inside it, and it's, I think, to evoke that sense that maybe just the ambient sound contains secret harmonies or, you know, mirage harmonies. also heard Paul Thomas Anderson saying that he liked about this music that they would be editing with it and listening to it and then when they'd turn it off his mind would still kind of be hallucinating this tone he would think maybe he was still hearing it because yeah ambient sound kind of contains enough general quiet noise that he thought well maybe that's the noise I'm hearing is that music continuing So they both said this, and so what you just said, I really like, and I want to think about that, that hearing music that is so sort of about the rudiments of auditory experience makes you experience things in some kind of existentially internal way, something like that. Yeah. That's really cool. And, you know, I have all my other thoughts. Well, I'll say my thoughts about this movie, and that wasn't one of them, but it's sort of connects to the way I experience this movie. Yeah, I myself have like two or three more thoughts. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay. All right, well, let's, yeah. let's do even odd. I'll do a thought and then you do a thought and then, mm. then we can be done. I definitely am aware in watching this movie with this score of the feeling that the music and the movie together are empowering me or trusting me mm. to do my own thinking about it. And that's really gratifying. And I attributed it to the kind of thinking and the kind of caring that the composer did and the kind of thinking and caring that the director did and that somehow they were conveying that to me. But 
I'm going to think about what you just said, that there's something actually kind of, I don't know, neurological or psychological about why that's coming across. Yeah, I really think that there is. You know, that phenomenon that you mentioned that both Greenwood and Anderson talked about in the interviews of kind of hearing hallucinatory things in white noise. It's an interesting phenomenon that I've definitely had, too, because... You know, white noise, by definition, is every frequency at once. And so, yeah, any given thing is in it in the way that, you know, the David was inside of a block of marble. If you have something, you know, sculpting, chipping away the frequencies and deciding what frequencies to pay attention to, that thing being your brain, you know, it can act like a sculptor. And that's called, you know, there's a difference in cognitive terminology between bottom up and top down. That is, do we start with all of the most basic inputs and assemble the result, only taking things that we know as givens, you know, building from the bottom up? Or do we have an idea of what the answer might be and look for that answer within the subordinate data inputs? That would be top down. And that kind of top-down hearing of something within everything, within noise, it's so interesting that he did that on purpose. And so you have a top-down experience, but it was achieved in a bottom-up way because he thought of notes and he put them on a page and had people actually play them. If you look at the score for Popcorn Superhead Receiver, it's notated for string orchestra but unlike a traditional classical orchestra score where there are sections you only have say four or five lines for the whole string section because there's violin one and two and violas and cellos and basses in this piece each individual performer has their own line in the chart it's like violins one through however many there are 18 and then violas one through 12 and they all have their own basic sort of like here are the neurological signals that you axon number 23 will send up the chain of command and then it gets assembled in your head into something that has the feeling of you know sculpting ideas out of the world of possible ideas out of the ether of thought space And I do think that having that in there just makes you alive to human instincts and the sort of malleable, plastic sense of what people are thinking about before their thoughts have names or words or language attached to them. It's this burbling, plastic thought space. And by putting you in a place that can think about that, it makes... You know, I, I don't know if I would quite enjoy this music as much if I were hearing it in a concert hall as I do when it's proposed to me, this music is like this guy prospecting for silver and breaking his leg and being ambitious and being ruthless in different ways. This is a statement of, you know, the oozing amoeba of 
human existence. I should probably let you talk. Go ahead. No, no, it's all it's all good. At the very end, I thought, oh, don't go to the next thing because I got so much to say about the previous thing. But okay, yes, okay. I love all of that. Thank you. Like the thing I was planning to say that is like driving parallel on the same road mm-hmm. is, so I'll go a little detour here. This music, we're basically talking about the very, very first gesture in the movie here. Yeah. Or the whole first sequence is actually scored with excerpts from this piece, Popcorn Superhead Receiver, which the title of which... Yeah, I wanted to take a quick <laughs> sidebar about the title. Do you know what Do you know what it means, a Superhead Receiver? Or some kind of radio receiver. Um, yeah, well, do you know what Superhead... Superheterodyne, right? Superheterodyne. And I tried to look it up because I thought, ooh, if I understand what a Superheterodyne radio receiver is, then I will understand something about what Johnny Greenwood intended here. And uh, I... <laughs> That is not the case. That is not the case. And I'm very relieved to learn that it's not the case because I cannot really repeat to you what a super heterodyne receiver does. It takes frequencies and like mixes them together, but there's a intermediate... Okay, I'm just going to start babbling. I I saw an interview where Johnny Greenwood said... He just wanted to give the piece some kind of technical radio terminology sounding title because he wanted to evoke the world of technical radio stuff, that that's the kind of piece it was. And static. He just wanted the title to like make you think of, you know, radio static somehow. Yeah, of the machine. And he said he had a sheet of paper where he'd written down a lot of radio terms that he got out of some, you know, glossary of radio terms. Well, he is a radio head after all. Oh, interesting. And he just liked the sound of Superhead. And I think he said in this interview, he doesn't even really understand what a Superhead is. Popcorn, on the other hand, I could not find any source on. Why is Popcorn in there? I don't know. Because it's in the movie? But no, he named it before it was in a movie. Okay. <laughs> yeah. If anyone knows, write in and tell us what Popcorn means in the world of radio. I, I, I mean, I'm really sympathetic to just affixing the word Popcorn to the name of anything. I really, really like popcorn a lot. Yeah, it's just good branding. Yeah. So anyway, this piece, it's inspired by these experiences with noise in the car, but it is also fairly directly inspired by 20th century avant-garde classical music that he knew and admired and Mm -hmm. was excited to try his own hand at, particularly music by this composer, Krzysztof Penderecki, a Polish composer of the mid-20th century who wrote bunch of pieces in the 60s and 70s with extremely extended techniques in every sense. The instruments would do unusual things, they'd be combined in unusual ways, and his scores, many of them don't even use, you know, notes with circles and stems. He would make like, you know, spreading black lines that change their width, or squiggly lines to show squiggling, or invent notation to mean, you know, do something randomly for a certain amount of time, and it created all of these sound worlds that explored the world of sound beyond the bounds of what you can do with discrete notes on the staff. And this music is best known to the general public because of its use in horror movies, starting, I think, with The Exorcist, if you're looking at uh, Penderecki in particular, but if you go back to 2001, where Stanley Kubrick put similarly kind of sonic music by uh, George Ligeti. With clusters. Clusters, yeah, and just the eeriness of... Dissonant buzzing. Yeah, weird noises, just what is that? It's alien, it's so strange and disturbing. And then, yes, in The Exorcist, Then Kubrick used Penderecki himself in The Shining. Ah. 
How do you like it? <laughs> These sounds are horror movie sounds to so many people. And I saw an interview with Johnny Greenwood, who apparently in the three weeks he was going to music school before <laughs> Radiohead signed a contract and he was done being a normal person. <laughs> I mean, it was just regular college, right? He was just taking a music class in college and his teacher was a fan of this kind of stuff and played Penderecki for the class. And it sort of got in the door just as the train was leaving for Greenwood's head. And then he spent 10 years touring with Radiohead, but he always wanted to come back to this because his eyes were opened by it. Yeah, this piece Polymorphia and then... Johnny Greenwood later wrote a piece specifically like uh, something responses to Polymorphia and he performed it with Krzysztof Penderecki because he was such a fan. Anyway, there's a direct connection here in his head. And I saw an interview where Greenwood says... You play it to some people and they describe it as music for a horror film. And it's not really like that. And, and it's hard to explain how in a concert hall this stuff is actually much quieter and, and, and softer and stranger and and more complicated. And I spent some time thinking about that in relation to this movie because this is not a horror movie. I don't think anyone would describe the emotions that the music puts across in this movie as horror, but it goes to almost the same place. And I started thinking a thing, and I promise this is going to connect to what you were just saying. All right. On some prior episode, I don't remember what the conversation was, but we, we were talking about what our respective theories of humor is, like what is humor. Oh, that was for Young Frankenstein. Uh, as it might well have been. Sure. And you said your theory of humor is that it's about saying something that you actually know in common with the audience, a recognition of a shared awareness. Yes, yeah, it's pointing out shared knowledge. Yeah. And I said something similar, slightly different phrasing of a similar thought, that humor arises in the moment when you're reminded that you share experiences outside of the rational, linguistic, mm. you know, sensible social order, that there's a secret social order that extends beyond the official boundaries and that there's there's stuff out there that we all share that hasn't it hasn't yet been named that we share and that you know maybe we're afraid to step through that boundary and then someone just names the thing that's beyond the boundary and oh they've brought it in they reclaimed it and now it comes into the shared space i mean that's sort of the, what i was getting at with humor i mean that's why it's funny when somebody says you ever notice when such and so right oh yeah i have noticed that i have noticed that but i had yeah. no name prior to now right just pointing it out just saying i know about this thing that you know about yeah that's all it takes to be funny right but if someone said, have you ever noticed that soccer balls are round? You'd be like, yeah, <laughs> I knew that people knew that. You have to name a thing that hasn't been named yet. That's, That's right. It has to be interesting to point out that we both know it. Right. Well, I'm saying that the interest comes in the fact that it is beyond a boundary of societal security that we have. We don't know what's out there. I totally agree that that's one way that that can happen. Yeah. All right. Well, here I'm going to the next thought, which is... Can't wait. Horror is similar. Mm. It's about being reminded of the stuff that's beyond the bounds of what we feel confident knowledge of that we can rationalize it and we can quantify it and we have names for it there's stuff out beyond that weird stuff stuff that's uh, out there beyond your words you don't necessarily know what it is or what the name of it is but unlike humor it doesn't get reclaimed they just evoke it it's, it's sort of like everything but the relief there is no name for this thing we all know that it's out there 
And my thought was, here finally, uh-huh. I think that what Greenwood is saying when he says this music is something more complicated than just horror is that horror is not the only response to such a reminder. In fact, I was thinking like horror is actually kind of the approved response and the out there response to out there stuff is to be like, huh, look at that, pretty weird. Pretty weird, and I don't know what it is, and it's mysterious, and yeah, it brings up some kind of deep instincts of a little bit of fear and uncertainty. But there are a lot of ways we could go with this. Maybe it is nameable, maybe we should seek out to name it, or maybe we can be comfortable with all of this weirdness. That's kind of a high art attitude that you can play these very, very weird noises that aren't notes. They're not quantized and quantified as notes. There's just sound, kind of aspects of experience, which is what you were saying, this kind of glutinous, what, what words did you use? <laughs> <laughs> I like glutinous. That's a little, little too gross for what I'm going for here. Uh, malleable, plastic, I was saying. Yeah, plastic. And I feel like the effect in the movie is to immediately at the beginning, before the lights are even up, the very first thing you hear as the lights come up is this effect of saying, there are things with names here, but you know, (laughs) here's the F sharp if you want one note, if you're the kind of person who wants one note. But where did it come from? It came from noise, all of this experience that we're going to be interested in without being able to put a finger on it. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson's attitude and Johnny Greenwood's attitude and the attitude of putting this stuff together is a non-horrified attitude of, like I think of Paul Thomas Anderson as someone, his, his answers in talkbacks to think, why did you do that? Why did you do this? Why did you do it that way? He's like, I thought that was cool. It was kind of interesting. You know, there's something there. I don't know what that is, but uh, something in me is responding to it. And I feel like this movie right away says, be open to things that you don't know what they are that you might respond to. And now let's start looking at this thing that who knows what this is? What, What are we looking at here? I don't know. And it's very similar to what you said, that it's about something prior to or apart from the sensible order of things. To start the audience on that footing in the first second of a movie, like whatever story I tell, we might not be here for the story. We might be here for the supernatural other dimension story of existence that can never be pinned down. That's great. (laughs) Great start. Yeah, absolutely. The first musical gesture, this very dense microtonal cluster falls right on the fading up of this landscape shot with these three hills and they're sort of not really glamorous landscape but still like a western landscape and right away the music is telling you yeah yeah, we we don't have to think about this landscape as a landscape as a western as a you know i don't need to play you the music that would be happening in this part of the world it's just about it's just noise and then there's Noise coalesces into something, and then it's noise again. Yeah, it's just as you said, it's putting up a different antenna in your head. And so then, yeah, this music continues as we now cut to Daniel Plainview in the mine, swinging his pickaxe, and then it goes away for a while, and then some stuff happens in the mine, and then there's a mishap, and he falls and hurts himself. And now, just as he is climbing with a broken leg back up out of the mine, 
it sneaks in. It just, like, is hiding behind the sounds of him scrabbling against the dirt. The way that it grows out of just the space, the air, the ether of everything is so effective and so telling. This is what's around everything all the time. This is inside of everything all the time. This is inside of effort and, you know, society, humanity. Curtains being opened onto something that we never talk about. Something that we never talk about. Yeah, I think this movie benefits immeasurably from the music establishing that whatever it may seem to be about, it's actually about something that we don't know about. All of the independent thinking you have to do to find that thing, to find what is happening to Daniel Plainview, what is driving him and what kind of process is he undergoing, you know in your gut because of this music that there is not a simple approved answer to that. You have to do some spiritual questing to solve it and a huge part of the power of the movie is in that. So yeah, this whole opening sequence, he transitions from being a silver miner to being an oil prospector. We see his early attempts with his early crew. This whole sequence is scored with this pre-existing piece that is not written for the movie that Paul Thomas Anderson put in the movie. But he puts it in such a way that there's some really nice serendipitous linings up between what's happening in the music and what's happening on screen. Yeah, when they're climbing down in the first oil well that we see and they go deep down into this pit, as the guy's descending toward a black bed of oil, there's suddenly a note. Yeah. It is disturbing, it is frightening to me. The question of what are we seeing and how does it relate to this sound becomes really intense at that point. I feel when I'm watching these sequences that it's implying that whatever evils, uh, whatever spiritual decay we watch play out over the rest of this movie, somehow this stuff from under the ground is making it happen. It came from underground. When you see the black oil bubbling up and then you hear this note, this rising line, it's like it goes up a quarter tone, then it goes up two quarter tones, then it goes up three quarter tones. Each of these is a little nauseating. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the music is oozing. You know, he picked it because it absolutely feels like some kind of a, yeah, dark substance bubbling and burbling and seeping. You know, before that shot, the camera kind of pushes toward the well and then it tilts down. Yeah, that's a nice shot. It's like a horror movie effect where the camera becomes, you know, you're seeing from the killer's point of view, you're the shark, you're the monster. The camera is kind of creeping around. To me, the music links with that. It's this sense that some unseen force is doing it. Maybe the oil is doing it or whatever put the oil there is doing it. There's some uncanny oppression on all of this business. And I kind of feel like, yeah, these notes that suddenly show up and start acting more like notes than the miasmatic mush that we had heard before was. Right. Even that is still kind of playing around with, like, just teasing and tickling at these very basic rudiments of 
how your mind processes input. It doesn't really say anything itself. It just says, like, have all of your faculties for hearing and relating things to each other in time. Just to have them going. Yeah, it wakes you up. It feels good. There's something about this kind of scoring, this, like, angle of conjunction between the music and the movie that makes me feel good almost immediately. Like, oh, it's one of these. I am being called on to be alive and aware and think. On other episodes, I've complained or at least been ambivalent about music that carefully manipulates me but doesn't give me something to consciously make anything of. I think at some level it's because I feel like I'm not being trusted to run my own experience properly. We don't want your mind to roam around. We're trying to keep mm -hmm, it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. between the walls of this experience. Try and get on board, please. It's sort of a social bristling when I don't love that. And in this movie, I have the opposite feeling of like, oh, they really want me to have my experience that I'm having. Like, whatever I can make of this, that's what they want. I'm welcome here. I'm needed here. Mm. It's invigorating. It gives you a sense that this viewing experience is going to count. The dark ride experience where, you know, you got to keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle and it shows you a bunch of cool things. That can be good. It can be fun. But uh, you know it's just fun. This movie feels like you're going to see something that matters. Pay attention to it and be the best you can be. And I love that. I agree absolutely. And I think that's a very apt metaphor for it. I think the metaphor was undercut slightly by your correct use of the term dark ride, which suggests something, you know, cool and unknown and perhaps... I mean, a ride that's on rails and is about looking at things. Perhaps evocative of these kinds of existential questions. No, but it's actually just the like industry term for what I call the storybook rides at Disneyland. They call them dark rides because there's like UV light in them. And yeah, and they're like, oh, Mr. Toad goes over here. And yeah, it's relevant to my metaphor because a light ride would be one where you can see the world at the same time. If you're on a roller coaster, you're going up and down, but you're also like, you can see the weather, you can see the sun, you can see all the other people at the amusement park. In the dark ride, like the entire experiential, right. whatever, panopticon of it ooh. Ooh, <laughs> is controlled. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It just sounded like it was like a more mystical thing than it was. But anyway, I think, yes, very well said. And I absolutely agree with when you said that you can get that experience from this kind of scoring. So we have to talk about who's doing this kind of scoring because it's not at least in so far as this opening sequence in the movie the first like 12 13 minutes that scoring wasn't done by johnny green when it was sort of done by paul thomas anderson well you know the name i most associate with that effect of scoring is stanley kubrick using other music that right. exists you know the needle drop music yeah so this is a needle drop and this differentiates it from Kubrick's needle drops because Anderson reached out to Greenwood and you know said I'm going to use this but I also want to make you a collaborator for more right this score as a whole is it's essentially the best of both worlds right. he got the guy who wrote his pre-existing music to write some more pre-existing music that didn't pre-exist but he wrote more music with that same distance in the writing process so that it could be applied to the movie in almost the same way, don't you think? That's true. None of this music, and there is a significant amount of original music that Greenwood wrote specifically to be used in this movie, but none of it was written to picture. It was instead sort of written to concepts and to reactions. Yeah, I heard Anderson say in an interview that Johnny Greenwood said, 
so I just need to write music about the story, right? <laughs> and he said, yeah, that's right. And then he went off and sort of disappeared for a few weeks and wrote like 90 minutes of music about things in the story. Actually, you know, a pretty small percentage of that shows up in the movie after all. Yeah, I also saw Paul Thomas Anderson saying that he felt a responsibility to all that music that he admired and sort of felt bad about not using so much of it. Right. But, you know, all of the choices about what to use and where to use it have clearly been made with full artistic care. Yes, absolutely. But those choices were made by Anderson. Greenwood just sort of turned in this stack of music and he gave titles to these different pieces. Titles that were kind of evocative of or descriptive of either ideas in the movie or actions in the movie. Anderson would just listen to it's like, oh, I want to hear the piece that's about prospectors arrive. I think I heard him say that one in particular mm -hmm. in an interview. Uh, what does it sound for prospectors to arrive? Or, you know, I'm looking at the list of tracks that actually made it into the movie. Open spaces. Mm -hmm. Future markets. These are just sort of nebulous concepts that one might take away from the movie. Greenwood called his pieces those and left it up to Anderson to apply them sort of around those concepts as he saw fit, but it was Anderson who was doing the applying. This is a really interesting case where the titles of the cues actually really mattered to the creative process. Usually right. the titles of the cues are so inconsequential and finding out what the names of the cues were in a movie is like this esoterica that you have to dig and it's often you don't even find out and then when they release it on the soundtrack they change the names to be whatever the yeah. producer of the soundtrack wants and here is a case where no the composer came up with those names and the names are basically how the music was born linked to the movie there was no other link that's right there was no other link he's thought well there are some open spaces in the movie. Here's the music that I make when I think about the idea of open spaces. You hear this start to sneak in over the tail end of the conversation with Paul Dano playing the main character that he plays in the movie's twin brother who sets Daniel Day Lewis on the path towards the community where the most of the story is going to play out. Here's five hundred dollars. Tell me something worth hearing. This money's yours. I come from a town called Little Boston in Isabella County. We only see this character, this twin character, in this, this one scene. But at the end of this scene, when he's telling Daniel Plainview where to go to find the oil and to exploit it. This music starts to come in, and you kind of get the sense that it is a prelap that this music belongs to the next thing that we're going to see. God bless. And to you. And indeed, we now cut to this very striking shot of train tracks vanishing into the vanishing point in the distance, and the broad landscape, this kind of barren, chaparral-covered landscape in California. These are the open spaces in the movie, and these are the open spaces in Greenwood's head. Yeah, and this cue, it's sort of the first harmonically comfortable, lyrical kind of music we hear, and yet mm -hmm. it's not reassuring at all, is it? I mean, to me, this is a scene that in a normal telling of such a story, in a normal movie, you'd sort of instinctively think, well, here's this guy, he's looking for oil. I bet there is oil here. Ooh, maybe he's going to strike it rich. I wonder what's going to happen here. 
And this movie has established that we are watching something much more disturbing and more esoteric than that. And so when this music that does sound sort of open right. and pretty. A little Copelandy even. A little Copelandy, a little like the way that the chords at the beginning of Appalachian Spring stack up. It's a four and then a one in minor, and the four hangs around even after he moves to the one, so you get this modal collection of notes that hang in the air. Well, crucially, they don't just hang in the air. That's right. It seems to me that a really important idea in the music that he both wrote for this movie and that was selected from his previous compositions. Besides Popcorn Superhead Receiver, there are other pre-existing compositions of Greenwood's that show up in the movie. And then, of course, then there's Brahms shows up later. And also music by Arvold Perrot. But I think what kind of unifies all of them is the importance that you can hear the music being performed on a real acoustic instrument. So you can hear the bow noise the like mechanical sound of the strings and the instrument I think is very important to everything that happens musically in this movie Greenwood is very sensitive to that and wants to never lose sight of that and so I said that these chords don't just hang around they kind of shimmer and he has cared for this shimmer It's notated in the score, there's a few different versions, but one of them is notated that as the strings are all holding this note, it says, many random bow changes during the diminuendo with a slight accent on each, about four per bar. Which is an odd instruction. You know, if you're holding a long note on a stringed instrument, if you want the note to keep going longer than the amount of bow that you have to drag across it, you have to start moving the bow back in the other direction. And that's a bow change. And usually a string section will try to hide their bow changes or will coordinate their bow changes so that you can't tell when it's happening. But here he wants to highlight the fact that, yeah, this is being made by somebody dragging hair across a string. And I want you to be aware of that friction. I thought an even more interesting invention on his part is the next thing that he does to Mm -hmm. cloud up these chords. It says in the score, one-eighth trill. And when I first saw that, I thought, oh, he means like an eighth tone, like half of a quarter tone, a tiny, tiny. No, what he means is one-eighth the speed of a normal trill. And he says, just everyone at random, freely, every player separately, alternate the main note with brief intermittent interruptions by this other note at about one-eighth of the speed of trill, you know, would be like very fast alternation. That was a good trill. And this is just like every now and then go over there. And it creates, yeah, in my mind, it was like a heat mirage effect. Yeah, exactly. It was like as you look across these open spaces, the picture wobbles a little. Right, because when you have a whole section of players doing this, 
it all blurs together. And that's right that you can hear the bow on the string, you can hear the physicality of it. I just think of that as part of, like you said earlier, the burbling experience, the amorphous. Yeah, absolutely. That's the equation that's being made, is that the burbling, the ineffable, unnameable forces and instincts within people is, you know, it comes from people. It <laughs> You need to be able to hear people doing it. Well, so uh, uh, back to get the big question going up in the air already. Yeah. Well, where does it come from? Why do the things that happen in this movie happen? Does it come from people? Oh, that, I thought the big question you were going to ask is, you know, should this score have been eligible for an Oscar? All right. Well, let's we can hash this out. Because it was not. It was ruled ineligible for the Oscar because of the prominent use of pre-existing music, as we said, Popcorn Super at Receiver. And then we'll get to some more things, which... No doubt those pieces, as we've you know spent however long we've already spent talking just about that one sequence with that one pre-existing piece, no doubt they have an outsized role to play in the musical experience of the movie. I mean, they really do. I think that the sequences that people take away as the ones that are really remarkably scored are the ones where the music was pre-existing, Paul Thomas Anderson edited to that music, yeah. and it has a really powerful effect. So the the line in the Academy Rules, you know I love reading rules, is uh, a score shall not be eligible if, here's the line, it has been diluted by the use of pre-existing music. And they said that this score had been diluted by the use of pre-existing music. And yeah, that seems right to me. I mean, I know people are very angry because they liked this score and wanted to see it rewarded. But um, the Academy is just the Academy, and these are their rules. It seems like a correct application of the rules. What do you think? I agree. It's, I think it is a correct application of the rule that you just read. I think undoubtedly it's a correct application of that rule. The question is, should that be the rule? Because people really did have an emotional, powerful reaction to the way the music was in this movie. Why can't we celebrate that? I, I really am of two minds about it myself, because I think that it would have been good for everybody to have this put into whatever spotlight the Academy can provide by nominating it. But then again, it isn't scoring in the way that we've been talking about it. I don't know. You know, if Stanley Kubrick had gotten an award for, you know, putting the Blue Danube in 2001 and, like, no composer was involved in the Best Score Award, that, like, fine if you want to have that kind of award. But they don't. That's not what the Academy has decided. Well, it's complicated in this case relative to the Blue Danube in 2001, where that is just a needle drop. It's complicated by the fact that he got the guy on whom he was dropping the needle to be involved and to write more stuff and to expand upon the needle drop and to be part of the process of the needle dropping. So I do see that as a different animal than Kubrick. It is, but this uh, concept of diluted, I think that the score is diluted to the point where the original score as originally written is almost hard to see. In preparing for this, I started noticing, oh, there are recurring motifs. There is a kind of compositional integrity to the music that he wrote for the movie that uh, is not shared by the music he didn't write for the movie. In those few weeks when he wrote a bunch of music for the movie, he wrote a bunch of things that share material. And I hadn't noticed it before because that integrity is indeed diluted, diluted yeah. by the use of pre-existing music. And I think the responsibility for how satisfying this score is, is widely enough distributed among the director and the editor and the music editor and the composer. And it just sort of the whole creative team has their hands in this. So if that's not what the Academy gets excited about, 
start your own award. Start a different. There's <laughs> there's other awards out there. Yeah, I think I ultimately agree with that. So, like the next cue in the movie, which is one of the original cues written originally for the movie. Right. Future markets. As used in the movie, it's for a sequence where we see Daniel Plainview, his drive, his unstoppable energy for acquiring and conquering. He's buying up all the property. There's business afoot. There's business afoot. Well, Paul Sunday turned out to be a good friend And we of ours. see him sort of brushing off a competitor. Right. Dealing with the real estate agent in town. And then going out into the land to do surveying. And there's a particularly energetic violin passage when he does that. suggests busyness and concentrated, focused activity, but there's also a comic undertone to it or a irony to the way it's used, don't you think? Yes. I feel like the ironic detachment that you find in a Kubrick movie when he uses existing music is part of this scoring style. The fact that the music doesn't seem preoccupied with the action on screen and is motivated mm-hmm. by its own inner needs and drives. It's like it's modeling skepticism about the unquestioned status of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, maybe the thing that's going on in the movie isn't all it's cracked up to be. I, I have my own force of personality here, and that's implicitly kind of, yeah, ironic or skeptical. Yeah, you're right. It's getting mileage out of feeling like it's not quite the same project. I feel like the distance that it has from the picture is having a similar effect of just like keeping your drama digesting metabolism, keeping it active, keeping it on its toes. And this particular piece, in a normal movie, this sequence about the vigor, the drive behind his business would be kind of a hopeful, oh, he's getting this show on the road, here he goes, kind of a montage. And here it's this maniacal splintering of such a thing. It's menacing. Yeah, it's nerve-wracking. There's this sense of some kind of exploding forces. And then they show you a train, and there's almost a sense that if it's wedded to anything, it's this train, like, get out of the way of this thing coming at you. Yeah, it, for a moment, I think the rhythm matches exactly up with the rhythm of the choo-choo of the train, you know, and these pizzicatos running around maniacally. It's cute that you still call it a choo-choo. I'm saying the specific choo-choo-choo-choo, choo-choo-choo-choo, you know. Yeah, and, you know, Daniel Plainview hasn't even really done anything too villainous at this point in the movie, but you're starting to understand that his energy is an untrustworthy, Mm -hmm. kind of crazed energy. Well, I don't think he is too villainous at this point in the movie. No, that's right. That's right. I think that is something that kind of falls out of the interaction of these forces, the forces of wealth and ambition and society and... Somehow for me, the music is always making me like just have my head open to the underlying forces at play. Yeah, but you couldn't say what they are, could you? If someone said this is a movie about the evils of capitalism, which people say often, yeah. do you think, oh, that's probably the right name for it? Because I hear that and I'm like, oh, that's the easy way out. If you think that this movie is about a thing that you can like write a clean political statement about, you're denying a lot of the aesthetic force here, which is that it's about something much weirder and more elemental. Yeah, it's definitely not clean, but I think that's in there. It is in there, but many things are in there, I think. 
Before we move on from this cue, I wanted to say, here's what I was saying, that there are recurring motifs in the original music. Mm -hmm. This bass line that you hear over and over in this cue, dun 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 dun. It can be pointed out in some of the other cues. But this line that shows up on top, kind of a passage reminiscent of the main title from Psycho, don't you think? Where there's a long violin line on top. Oh, sure. Yeah, where there's this active motor energy in the strings, but then the top of it is a long line, yeah. Well, that long line, when he sings out there... ...is this figure... Da, 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 da. Yeah. That's in the long line there, and then if you listen to those fast running lines you mentioned, those are built out of bits of that. In fact, that little figure was in open spaces that we heard earlier when the open spaces kind of degenerate into this creeping Bartok weird stuff. It's that line, like that line is the molecule. It's the cell that somehow indicates that we're in there will be blood. Yeah, in open spaces, it's like the cloud of still air that this shimmering cord is being, this little line kind of emerges out of it as just a little bit of turbulence, just a little eddy in the air as it's sitting there. When that happens, I feel like it's also just a signal that what this music is doing has that classical music motivation to it. It's not just happening to help get these characters across the screen. You're in intellectual space here. You're not just in a story. You're in a working out of conceptual business that it will not rest. But anyway, this stuff comes up again in the next cue, which is Prospectors Arrive, which for the most part is something else. But here, we'll just jump right to the point here. Hear that? Da, 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 da. Sure. There it is. But let's talk about this piece, which is the Radiohead cue in this score. He always has at least one. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll buy that. I mean, actually listening to this, it drew a connection for me that I hadn't really drawn before between the Radiohead sound of strong chord changes with someone singing over. Here, instead of Tom York, we've got the piano and the Aunt Martineau, which is an instrument that is kind of an improvement on the theremin that Johnny Greenwood is extremely fond of, wrote it into a lot of his pieces, keeps returning to it. It's a keyboard-shaped instrument. In fact, there is a playable keyboard on it, but there's also a sliding wire that's strung in the loop and you put your finger through a ring and you drag it side to side and push the tone up and down. It makes a beautiful eerie sound like the theremin and it's better controlled than the theremin. And Johnny Greenwood is really into the Aunt Martineau and I'm sure he found out about it because the person who was most into the Aunt Martineau, who's most strongly associated with it, is the French composer Olivier Messiaen, who was a major iconoclastic composer of the 20th century and used this in many of his pieces. And while I was listening to this, I thought, oh, that sounds like Radiohead, but it 
also sounds like Messiaen. It sounds like his piece probably is one of his best known pieces, Quartet for the End of Time. Mm. Do you know this? Yeah. There's a couple of movements in there that are a slow, steady chord pulsing on the piano, and then achingly pretty, tensed, but beautiful lines. There are lots of little hints of Messiaen in this score, and in John Greenwood's writing, it's just obviously a big influence on his mindset. Yeah, just the close connection between, like, actual Radiohead songs that have this feeling to them. What's the one? Well, I wanted to read this quote from this interesting interview that Greenwood gave to the New Yorker writer Alex Ross, who's written about all things classical music for the New Yorker for a long time. And Alex Ross begins this article by saying, when in the 1990s the grand and strange rock bands known as Radiohead rose to fame, word began spreading excitedly among younger classical music nerds, we now had someone on the inside. Mm -hmm. If an arena-filling band was inserting multi-octave octatonic scales into guitar anthems, or derailing string arrangements with cluster string chords, the likelihood was strong that a modern classical mole had penetrated the inner sanctum of pop power. Yeah, and some of that stuff, when you hear it in a Radiohead song, you think, well, that's a high detail that they added to this. I was just struck that some of the low is the wrong word, but the straight ahead stuff that sounds like a pop ballad, That, too, has a precursor in the high classical world. This piece, Prospectors Arrive, it sounds a little like a Radiohead song. It sounds like a Messian piece and has a very eerie effect in the movie. It does have an eerie effect. In a way, I kind of feel like it's the music that connects with the story on the most straightforward level. Because it's happening when Daniel Plainview is having another town hall meeting and he's promising them a school and roads and irrigation for crops. This is contrasted with the first scene with dialogue in the movie when he's at another town hall that doesn't go well, where he just walks out in a huff because everybody's yelling and arguing. This time, the music is giving the sense that he's connecting with the townsfolk in these promises. Education is a necessity, and we're just so happy to take care of that. So let's build a wonderful school in Little Boston. These children are the future. And like you said, there's not really a particular reason to mistrust him or to think that there's an ulterior motive to anything that he's saying. It sounds good. What he's saying sounds good, and I think we're supposed to think that it sounds good. In my mind, uh, it's an abomination to consider that any man, woman, or child in this magnificent country of ours should have to look upon a loaf of bread as a luxury. And he's not being duplicitous. Like, I think this is sort of the best version of Daniel Plainview and his ambition and the industry that he is representing. It's like this is the sound of the uncorrupted, socially responsible business proposal that he's making. Culture, employment, education. These are just a few of the things we can offer. Huh, I don't I feel the scene that way. I see that his speech here, which as you say is not duplicitous, but it's sort of 
drawing a parallel with Eli's preaching. Okay, sure. I think anyway, when he talks about the loaves and how no one should go without bread. And I think it's also important to point out that this music is not just for this scene. Paul Thomas Anderson is respecting the instruction embedded in the title that this is a scene of prospectors arrive. And the first shot when you hear this music is the shot of all of his men arriving on the train who are going to do all of the labor. But it's over the speech. We still hear the speech while we see the shot of that. Well, the relationship of the speech to the visual of all of these men arriving at dusk and setting up camp and sort of the life of the camp and the life of the community as things change, its relationship to the speech and to the music and the music's relationship to the speech, they're all, as with everything else, it removes from each other that Mm -hmm. puts you in the position of trying to see the connections. And the harmonic thing that keeps happening at the beginning of this cue, where for 20 seconds or something, for a long time, you get this first chord. An inverted major chord, so it's not quite settled, but it's warm, it's positive. And then it resolves up a third with one of these new information kind of resolutions that we've talked about before. Oh, somewhat mind-changing. Your emotions move repeats over and over with this song like the Aunt Martineau and the piano, and it feels like someone is mourning for something or their heart is singing about something that is not... I couldn't hear it as coming from Daniel Plainview's heart. It felt like some vision looking at this whole thing. No, I guess you're right. It's not exactly that, but it's... I felt like it wanted me to credit the noble intentions here. At the same time, yes, you know, nothing is ever clean and black and white. I see it as drawing connections just by its musical flow Mm -hmm. to anything underneath it. This is the Kubrick or Terrence Malick I've also used as a reference point for this kind of scoring before, that it gives authority to the editing by wrapping up anything that gets shown to you in this sound that has to keep flowing. In this sequence, the things that it links are, here come all of these people, then here's Daniel Plainview making his case to the community, and then it continues from there, and then we see Eli and his congregation proselytizing to the workers. And all of these things are linked with this beauty, this sort of, it's enigmatic. What is beautiful here? We can't think, oh, the money that oil will bring to this town is beautiful. Absolutely not. You know, some of the things I wrote down about this Oh, here I said you shouldn't say this movie is about capitalism. Well, I wrote down <laughs> uh, that it's sort of evoking the, the psychological enigma of capitalism, that the cruelty of it doesn't necessarily arise from anyone's cruel-heartedness. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at about all of these sympathetic instincts, instincts for wealth. Why, you know, what's wrong with having an instinct for wealth? What's wrong with having an instinct to cater to people's spiritual needs? You know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with with any of these inputs, but these are forces at play. Yeah, and the music is saying that there is also some ghost Mm -hmm. here. There's some evasive, spooky, oblique other force at work. And uh, our difficulty, or my difficulty anyway, trying to name what is being put across here is the art. The movie is so wonderfully unsummarizable, and I think the only way you can arrive at that kind of art is 
by sincerely being interested in things that you yourself, the artist, don't necessarily understand. Your antenna have to be up, like you said. You have to be alerted to uh, like what feels significant mm. at some pre-rational level. Yeah, I think people talk about movies too often. Boy, they talk about Stanley Kubrick this way too often. They assume that the movie maker is someone with a lot of secrets, that they're embedding their secret messages in code into the movie. I think a lot of real art making happens by a curiosity on the part of the makers that matches up with the curiosity of the audience. They're audience members too. They put things together and say, is this stimulating and provocative? And does it seem to get at something that I don't know what it is? And if the answer is yes, and they're sensitive enough, that's good enough. And I think this is one of those works. And I think that there's no right answers or even answers necessarily. It's just been done with such care that you know, the confusion I feel in this scene is such a productive confusion. Yeah, I totally agree about how artistically ambiguous and therefore rewarding this movie is. I kind of feel like when people think that they are perceiving secret hidden codes in movies, even though the specific secret hidden codes that they propose are probably not there, it still kind of vindicates this artistic impulse to put something ambiguous up there and encourage people to figure it out for themselves and to curate your uh, curate your curiosity. Ooh. Ooh, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So if there are like byproducts to that curiosity, then yeah, then somebody's doing something. That's absolutely what has been achieved here. We've kind of been talking through the music in this movie in chronological order as it appears in the movie. So I'd be interested to hear what you think about the next piece of music that happens, which, yes, now again, was not originally written for the movie. And in this case, sadly, Paul Thomas Anderson did not have the opportunity to go to this composer and say, can I use your piece in the movie? And would you please write more like it? This is the Brahms Violin Concerto. This to me is so Kubrickian that it's almost a reference to Kubrick. That's how it lands for me. How do you feel about it? Yeah, sure. But I also think that it's productive in the way that, you know, these Kubrickian moves are productive. And this is sort of part of what I was referring to when I said that what unites all of the music by all the different composers written at all the different times in this movie is this attention to the mechanical, physical sounds of playing a stringed instrument. You know, you get to really hear somebody digging into the violin. In this case, it's Anne Sophie Mutter playing the solo for von Karian conducting this, you know, old warhorse of a classical piece. You can really hear her digging into those double stops and like the pressure that it takes to put the bow into the strings to bounce the bow around. There's a lot of you know, effort behind it, and my guess is that that's why it was chosen, was because he wanted to have something in which you could hear the physical effort of playing the violin, but in this case, to contrast it with all the murky stuff that we've heard before, this is instead, you know, all of those forces, those unnameable forces in human nature, this is the sound of it wearing its Sunday best. This is it gussied up to make its appearance in high society. Fascinating. I don't get that out of it. You don't, okay. I feel like if, you know, Popcorn Superhead Receiver is this burbling, bubbling id, this is the superego saying, I must behave like this for society. I hear it because it is so obviously, explicitly something plucked out of a library 
that's the Kubrickian irony to me that, you know, it gets played at the moment that the drill starts and it's a celebratory. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, sure, it sounds very intrinsically celebratory, but it gives the impression that it's a put-on. That's right, that's right. The irony is that, like, this movie has no part in the celebration, honestly. Right. And in fact, to ironically remove at that moment and pick this thing that has a slightly merciless quality to it, right? It's kind of... There's something vicious about the way that the violin bites the strings there. Yeah, I think, but that's why it was chosen, because it's the merciless human forces bent into the most formal shape that it can be, relative to all of these other non-traditional expansive techniques we've heard already. I guess I almost don't even hear it on the same plane as the rest of the music. It's so clearly not a voice to be taken. I agree, it's not. It's definitely meant to, you're absolutely also meant to appreciate how far removed it is from what we're looking at. To me, it encroaches almost on the, like, Curb Your Enthusiasm sting, (laughs) where the music is like, (laughs) okay. You know, it's sort of like, oh, Daniel Plainview is doing very well by this town. It happens at the moment that he has just betrayed Eli's request that he call him a proud son of these hills, and he doesn't do any of the stuff that Eli wanted. God bless you all. Amen. So then he sort of gives Eli a look like, I hate you. Goodbye. (laughs) And then this music comes in. It's like it's the energy of his contempt, indistinguishable from the energy of the drill Uh and of the fake celebration. Sure. Because it's just Brahms. Let's just put on that old piece. Oh, everyone's very happy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It, It has such a sarcastic tone to me. And I feel confirmed in that somewhat by the fact that this recurs as the end credits music. Yeah, well, it definitely has that sarcastic Curb Your Enthusiasm tone there. Like... This is the totally unearned cap that's being put on top of this to make it feel like an ending, which only goes to highlight how unsettled things are and how much of an ending we didn't get to. I'm finished. Like, we certainly didn't get to this ending. Yeah, it's a black comedy sarcasm playing it here. Right, and what it's most like that we have in our catalog, in fact. I saw Paul Thomas Anderson saying in interviews where he is asked, is it supposed to be like Stanley Kubrick, the way you'd used music in this movie? And he answers the way you answer when the answer is yes, but you don't want to say, yes, I'm just imitating Stanley Kubrick because that's not a, it's not a good thing <laughs> for a director to say about his own work. So he says something like, it's hard not to be influenced by someone like Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> and then he said in one of these interviews, the first time I was really aware of what you could do with music in a movie was when I heard Singing in the Rain at the end of A Clockwork Orange. Mm. I was cured And it's just right. like that. It's just like that. It is exactly that effect yeah. of cutting to the credits and suddenly hearing music that is cheerful and extroverted and putting on a show for you in a way that is completely discongruous. And external to the movie. Right. The Brahms Violin Concerto leaves us to solve the puzzle of the movie because it assuredly is not the solution to the puzzle of the movie. Assuredly. Andy, I can't help but hear, like, what is it, this third, the second, the third phrase? Can't help but hear that as that line from uh, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. I'm sorry. All through my wild days, my mad existence. Like, <laughs> uh, Don't tell Brahms. <laughs> you don't think that was intentional? It right? might have been okay. intentional on Andrew Lloyd Webber's part. I don't know about, I don't know about anyone else involved here. But um, my apologies. 
Don't baptize me, Eli Sunday. Oh my God, did you prepare this? The truth is your church is hogwash. He did. <laughs> Folks, he prepared this. That's all. That's all I got. And it's it's like at two removes from what's even in the movie. For, I, I did think of I did think of that song while I was watching the movie though. Okay, fine. You know what, John? That was wonderful. Let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> what's next? Well, next is I think Smear. Right. So this is the other concert piece that Paul Thomas Anderson had acquired a recording of. I think this was written in two thousand four. And hear why this piece is called Smear. You know, actually, later in this piece, it becomes more accessible, more lyrical, but the part that gets used in the movie is two on Martineau on close but not identical pitches so that there's a beating effect between the two. And uh, it's creepy. And this is used for the scene when there's a death at the Derrick, right? The That's right. Tie that bit on. Tie it So this again is horror-like scoring for why does this happen? Why does the accident happen? It's just inherent to the kind of work that they're doing. So much of the movie making focuses on the physicality of so many things, especially of the labor of, you know, the oil is slick and the heat is a certain way and the, you, you get such a sense of all of this stuff. The music does kind of wed with that, with just a tactile sense of things. Mm -hmm. I think that's why the tactile nature of the stringed instruments is so important. Mm -hmm. Maybe so. You know, speaking of the physical fact of the labor involved here, I wonder if now would be a good time to bring up this movie that you made me watch because Paul Thomas Anderson said that it was a direct inspiration for him in making this movie. And not only that, it's a movie that he made a bunch of other people watch while they were working on this movie, including Johnny Greenwood. Yeah, he was sort of like, well, I don't want to say I'm just doing Stanley Kubrick when asked about that. But then he volunteered, well, the thing that I am willing to say was my kind of point of reference while I was making this movie. And I had it in my head. And I think he's also said it's his favorite movie. A lot of people have said it's their favorite movie. It's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, 1948, John Huston. Starring Humphrey Bogart as a gold prospector. Right. Yeah, and I watched it, and I, I am really glad I watched it because I... Because it's great, right? It was a good movie. It was a movie that had escaped my attention. Yes, it is a great movie. I'm really glad I watched it. It was a movie that was, for me, in the category of, I'm pretty sure I watched that when I was 10. Yeah. I think that counts. But I had no adult comprehension of it, and it was like I was seeing it completely for the first time. It's a really good movie, and the kind of surface connection that it has with... There Will Be Blood is the prospecting for precious metals aspect of it. I feel like it has a lot of visible connections. Yeah, it has a lot to do with these kinds of landscapes, this kind of hard work in the earth. But then it also plays with these, you know, instincts within human nature. Yeah, it's also about a mysterious moral decay. I think the ideas that he is taking from Treasure of the Sierra Madre are the uneasy relationship between the instincts to strike it rich and the actual labor that is required to make that happen. There's an old saying that I've heard about poker, but I bet it's been applied to lots of different things that it said that poker is the hardest way to make an easy living. To actually be a pro, you have to sit and grind and weather ups and downs and it's grueling. 
But there's this lure of, you know, when you win, you're getting away with something. And there's something about that that's captured in the treasure of the Sierra Madre. These guys are trying to strike it rich. Yeah, it's mighty rich. We'll pay good. How good? Oh, about 20 hours a ton. It's on $20 an ounce. How many tons can we handle a week? Depends on how hard we work. It's like a get-rich-quick scheme, except it's not quick at all. They have to spend months and months of back-breaking labor to earn the wealth that they find out of the ground. And more importantly, they have to meddle with these mysterious soul-eroding forces that the movie is about. Yeah. At the beginning of There Will Be Blood, that's what I feel is being said to me, that if you go out in the desert and you dig a deep enough hole... There is stuff out there that is very, very dangerous to your soul. And there's going to be a movie about people who go right up to it. Yeah, they go up to it because of this lure of, you know, filthy lucre. Yeah, treasure. Treasure, right. The treasure of this year, Montre. You know, that's what I think Anderson is taking from it to say that there's this lure of finding treasure, but then... The treasure just takes regular, honest work, but yet the treasure instinct is still there even when you're engaged in just, like, ordinary business. We're just doing business. I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Daniel Day-Lewis says to the guy in the movie, I have this competition in me. I don't want anybody else to succeed. I want to earn enough money I can get away from everyone. There's this pull to realize wealth that is ill at ease with just the simple business of having wealth and doing the work that the wealth entails. That is what I heard in all of these musical selections, both written for this movie and not, that they had something to say about these are just the instincts, these are just the forces, but they can combine and evil things can emerge out of them. I agree. In that scene when he says, I have a competition in me, he's saying it to his supposed brother, Henry. Right. And he says, that part of me is gone. I don't feel that way. I've failed so much that I just don't care about other people. I'm just just trying to make it. The contrast shows that Daniel Plainview is not just an inevitable symptom of a capitalist society. He is this guy. We don't know what's in his past, and we don't really know what's in his heart, and he certainly doesn't, but it's something that he carries onto the screen. And in Treasure of the Sierra Madre, there's three guys out there, and only one of them goes Humphrey Bogart. (laughs) There's only one Fred C. Dobbs. You mean only one of them, you know, falls victim to this madness. Yeah. That's what you mean by going Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, that's that's the term. I see. Used in the psychological literature. Conscience. What a thing. Yeah, you told me that one of the reasons I should watch the movie was because there's a Max Steiner score to it, and you know that I'm not crazy about Max Steiner scores, but, you know, maybe there's something interesting to it, and I will give you that. I think maybe there is something interesting in it. You know, maybe there's a bonus episode in that. Huh. We'll discuss. Well, I really, after watching the movie, I was convinced that the thing that you were specifically waiting for me to come across and take note of was the music that Steiner writes for this like soliloquy scene where Humphrey Bogart is going crazy and is yammering to himself about all his paranoia about his comrades and what he should do about it and how he's going to take all the gold for himself. And what is the music doing? It's this bizarre and dissonant cluster miasma that is very Unsteiner-like 
And that is, you know, making a psychological statement about how unhinged he is. Yeah, it's a mad scene in 1948. Right. And in 2007, it's just a whole world. I protest that it's un-Steiner-like. I think maybe we haven't seen the full breadth of Steiner in our selections earlier, and maybe that's what we would talk about in a bonus episode. But uh, it's certainly un-Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. But it is interesting to think that Anderson made Johnny Greenwood watch this movie. Yeah, maybe he did take some cues. Whether or not he took some cues, he also showed it to Daniel Day-Lewis and... He almost nodded and said, yeah, yeah, you caught me in an interview where someone asked him, are, are you doing a John Huston impression? Because it sounds like you might be doing John Huston. And he's like, well, you know, that, that, yeah, that might be in there. Yeah, I mean, John Huston is in the movie as a cameo. Yeah, and he says, like, I'm not giving you any more money. Yeah. But from now on, you have to make your way through life without my assistance. But uh, he doesn't quite sound like how John Huston sounded in Chinatown, for example. The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. But that voice that everyone loves doing and the intonation, the strange intonation. I'm not on no, no, That's pretty good. That's pretty good. This is my son and partner, H.W. I don't have any lines committed. I just have a sense of it. I could do it without knowing what I'm going to say. <laughs> it's the John Houston impression, basically. I don't think he thought he could like sneak that by. I think he knew people would, would know what he was doing. H.W. okay? Oh, yes, the next, and it's another one of these big, noteworthy musical sequences that is primarily not music written for the movie. Yeah, the big, crucial scene in the middle of the movie where the oil derrick that they've built catches fire and there's an enormous gusher of oil that destroys the derrick and winds up blowing out the eardrums of poor little H.W., his son. It's a big disaster, but then at the same time, it is proof that there is, as Daniel Day-Lewis says, there's an ocean of oil under our feet, and only I can get it. Oh, you changed it to a pirate. <laughs> Do that again, John. There's an ocean of oil under our feet. No, it's much o- too gruff. There's an ocean of oil under our yeah, feet. Yeah, you're right. You have, it's more walrus-like. There's an ocean of oil under <laughs> our feet, and only I can get it. There you go. There you go. That was better. Thank you for coaching me through that. So it is this kind of intersection point of a lot of different through lines of the movie. It's something bad is happening, but also it's the expression of naked oil lust. It's the turning point for his alienation from the normal world, because here is unthinkable wealth and his son, who's the only person he really truly feels close to, has now been, you know, cut off from him in a crucial way. Right. So for this sequence, Paul Thomas Anderson chooses a piece from actually the first film that Johnny Greenwood wrote music for. It's a 2003, like, art documentary film called Body Song. I saw it categorized as documentary in a bunch of places, but that's because people don't know what to call art film, experimental film. It's not a documentary. It's an assemblage of stock footage. Yeah. It's a collage film of existing footage. And it's all about the human body and all the different things that human bodies do. And it's full of original music by Johnny Greenwood. Again, not really written to picture, just sort of written to the brief, to the idea, and then assembled in editing against the picture. But it is, you know, the first feature-length film project that has Johnny Greenwood's music. I watched some of this on YouTube, and I thought this is actually a wonderful testing ground, training ground for film scoring. It's almost like the kind of thing that would be assigned as an assignment in a film scoring class. Like, all right, here's montage about, you know, gestation. Here's montage of birth, like a graphic footage of birth. 
here's montage of childhood, and here's montage of food, and here's montage of war. It's just collected footage, and it's such a, you know, art museum on a TV mounted on the wall in a gallery that no one really stands there and watches the whole thing kind of movie. It really does feel like that. I was just recently in the Tate Modern Gallery in London, and I could absolutely imagine this on the wall there. But Paul Thomas Anderson saw this at the Rotterdam Film Festival. He actually sat in a movie house where it was shown, because he was there showing uh, Punch Drunk Love. And he said he was really struck by what Johnny Greenwood did, because what Johnny Greenwood did was, like, what should the music that goes with birth sound like. I actually heard some of their commentary track about this, where he said, well, originally for these somewhat graphically shocking kind of, you know, close-ups of crowning babies, if it's a movie about the body, this is a cataclysm in the world of the body. And he wrote some shocking percussive music about chaos moving into order. And then they tried it against it and thought, actually, that's what's already on screen. And we need to get at something more mysterious about birth. And so then he wrote this more lyrical take on it for the birth scene. And the harsh percussion moving from chaos to order music that he had written got repurposed to later in the movie for the uh, violence montage. And that's this piece, Convergence, which apparently Paul Thomas Anderson heard and thought was pretty cool long before he knew he was going to work with Johnny Greenwood, but it, I guess, lodged in his head. It is pretty cool. It is written entirely for a percussion ensemble. All of these different percussion players have this bum-bum, bum-bum rhythm that each instrument is doing on its own. And then the idea is that they all slowly converge. Again, the title of the cue is Convergence. They coalesce into all having the same rhythm. In terms of percussion ensemble, I believe that what you're actually hearing on this track is just many Johnny Greenwoods layering himself in his own studio. There you go. It really is kind of a similar idea to what is done in Popcorn Superhead Receiver, where each individual player has their own line, and there's this emergent quality to the sound. You know, he's doing in rhythm, in convergence, what he does with pitch in... In the very first second, yeah. Yeah. The effect that it has in the movie, it absolutely, for me, had this feeling of, like, this is that energy that we were grappling with earlier, but caught fire, you know? <laughs> there's this infernal tower of fire that's erupting from the earth, and I felt the energy of this disordered blob of sound just like bursting a flame. To me, it relates to something that Paul Thomas Anderson had already done in uh, the score to Punch Trunk Love by John Bryan, where these internal anxieties, like the state of your brain jangling, of your emotions jangling, was this kind of oppressive, like, oh, oh, here comes that percussion again, and the sound of stress. And here, it corresponds to stress, obviously, but it also, you've heard the sounds of the drill just prior to the- That's true. The gusher bursting out. And so we sort of relate it to the machine that's going, and the general sense of chaos moving into order also seems like this is, as you said, the turning point for this character. This is a moment that's gonna sort of determine the course of the rest of his life and of the movie, and that, in some ways, seems like it's the order that's emerging out of this, mm. all of this violence, everything is chaotic, but it's coming together, oh, this is how things are gonna be. 
there's no escaping it now. Yeah, well, it winds up having this kind of single-minded and deranged quality by the end. And layered over this yes. is one of the pieces written newly for the movie. I think it's the one that's on the soundtrack called There Will Be Blood. Although I think there's also the one that's on the expanded soundtrack called Detuned Quartet, which is the same music being played by a string quartet. And in fact, he seems to have done this for many of the pieces. He recorded an orchestra-sized performance, and he also recorded a quartet or chamber-sized performance of the same music. And you hear it slipping from one to the other at various places in the movie. So anyway, these little bursts of dissonance and painful kind of shocks in the strings are a whole other track that's been layered on here to just constantly add to the thought layering. How many thoughts is Daniel Plainview having? How many thoughts is the viewer having? How complicated can this moment be? All of these things at once. It's great. I mean, it's a very, very powerful sequence. It's so, so striking. All right, so the next thing in here is kind of my one reservation about hmm. this. Like, I love this. I love the movie. I love the way the score relates. I'm all in. My one reservation is that there is this piece here by Arvo Parrott Fratres, which we talked about when we were talking about American Beauty, because it's a well-known piece of contemporary classical music. The part that is most germane to American Beauty is the part with these spare piano chords that are going around this ambivalent circle of chords that are kind of suggesting both major and minor. Mm -hmm. So there's just this uncertainty in the air feeling with them. This is actually a piece of music that Parrot wrote for indeterminate instruments. It can be played by different instruments or groups of instruments. Yeah, there's many, many different recordings for different uh, instrumentations. That's right. This is a cello and piano performance of it. Right. The piano part here is sort of the thing that relates to American Beauty. The cello part is the thing that relates to the rest of the music in this movie. Because again, it is very forward with the physicality of the stringed instrument right. going up and down these arpeggios. Yeah, everything about this piece is entirely, to my ear, within the ambit of the style that Greenwood uses in his music. Yeah. Which, when we were talking about Phantom Thread, we said, I said, that I really liked how organically his original music lived inside all of these selected non-original pieces but there was much more of that kind of intermixture going on there. This is the only artifact like that. I really do mm -hmm. set the Brahms aside as a separate category. Yeah, agreed. Whereas the Brahms is unmistakably not original to the movie, and that's the point. This kind of is potentially masquerading as something that could have been something Greenwood wrote. Right, and it's just, I guess, it seems to me a shame that it is a well-known piece. Like, this is not the only place you may have heard this. I think the reason this is in here must be because Johnny Greenwood didn't give him anything that had quite exactly the nervous energy of this, the foreboding, shivering quality of this, which actually navigates an important transition in the movie. This music justifies 
when Daniel Plainview suddenly strikes out at Eli and pummels him. He's kind of slap pummeling. I, I wouldn't use it. He slaps him, but then he shoves him down in the mud. Sure. And, uh, I don't know. You pummel to me sounds like... Yeah, like you're with the backs of your fists. Fists have to be involved in pummeling. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. He says, I'm going to bury you underground. Don't even try it. Grunt. I mean, I think what justifies him doing that is that uh, Eli's a little creep. <laughs> I, I was so on board with him doing that to Eli. But the outburst, the outburst, why, yeah, 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 why yeah. this emotional outburst? If there hadn't been this music, which plays over scenes of him trying his best to acclimate to the new circumstance where H.W. is deaf, how does he feel about it? He doesn't show it on his face. But here's this music, and it's something new is blowing on the wind. Some kind of new process has begun inside him. Right. I think I agree with you that I, I don't really love that this is still in there, kind of masquerading as though it might be something that Greenwood wrote. But I do think it's effective. Oh, it's very effective. You know, I'm of two minds because, yeah, in principle, it doesn't quite feel right. And why is it this piece that I recognize? But it's great. It's also great. It's such a good use of it. Yeah. It is such a good use of it. It so conveys ambivalence. Where are we? Who knows what is happening? There's so many layers to what we can think about what we're watching. Is this music about Daniel Day-Lewis's sudden malevolence? Yeah. We also see his workers just standing still looking at him do this. So like, is this music about their apathy at his malevolence and by extension the world's apathy at his malevolence or you know is this music about us the audience and our uncertainty about the world's apathy at his malevolence like all of these different levels of thinking about it are gainfully lofted up in the air by this music that is so piquantly giving the sense of hanging in the air and like pregnant with who knows what meaning yeah the movie is kind of operating musically, not just through its music, but in its construction, what kinds of logic it's trying to follow. And I think that there is a musical logic necessity to this too, which is that the previous event was this catastrophic explosion. And then the next thing that happens, I think we're very sensitive to it giving meaning to the preceding crisis. It meant trouble is a brewing. It meant things are changing. It has unleashed this mystery that can't be contained and won't settle. That's a very important kind of next place for us to end up, to not lose the big arc of the kind of musical story of the movie. Right, so this is the cue. This is the cue called Proven Lands on the soundtrack that's actually part of Popcorn Superhead Receiver that I remember in 2007 when I saw this in the theater. Mm -hmm. When this started up, I thought, this score is doing cool stuff that no one else is doing, and this is so great. I'm so excited to be watching a movie where this goes on. It's very satisfying musical kind of adventure that gets applied to the picture at this point. Yeah, let me just rewind it a little bit. We're listening right now to this awesome, like, analog drum machine that he makes out of the string section by having them do all of these outre techniques of making percussion noises with their instruments. But this is, like you said, part two of Popcorn Superhead Receiver. It is led into, gradually and organically, 
from the more cluster-like part of the piece that is what you hear enter the scene first after we see Daniel Plainview just threaten to cut somebody's throat for no reason at all. Why are you acting insane and threatening to cut my throat? Don't tell me. I'm not telling the music, you as the scene is I'm ending, again, like, oozes and pulses into the movie. I actually thought that I could hear, like, a train whistle sort of like noise in the strings. You know, again, it's just giving this feeling of there's, a, there's something unhinged. There's a feeling of being unhinged in the air, or the air itself just feels hazy and smoky and acrid, and these sort of weeping glisses as each individual player in the ensemble is instructed to slide notes down like acid rain precipitating out of a cloud. But then it, yes, it kind of fades into this percussive technique. He's actually instructed in the score of the musicians to plug against the strings of their instruments with a guitar pick. Then there's this angular and kooky pizzicato line that goes on top of that rhythm. One thing that occurred to me listening to this, it reminded me a little bit of an acapella troupe, uh, <laughs> you know, doing a full song arrangement. And like somebody says, we're going to make a whole band's worth of sound out of just this one kind of instrument. And so you're the percussion and you're the bass and you're the other percussion. And here are the specialized techniques you're going to use to do that. This reminds me of the passage from Bartok music for strings, percussion, and celesta, where he kind of gets a thing going, and then plump, these things kind of sparks fly off of the top. I have to assume that Johnny Greenwood likes that passage and oh, other sure. passages in classical music like that, because he has returned twice here in this score to that kind of a sound of like, the whole ensemble is kind of charging ahead, and then there's a nervous, unpredictable thing supported above it. In this one, it's so wonderfully dry against, they're in fields and they're doing work and it's another- They're doing more surveying. They're, they're doing surveying. They're planning out where the pipeline is gonna go. But they're doing secret illicit surveying on land that they don't have the rights to use yet. So there's this sense of like nefarious doings with this like menacing purpose to it. My read, which as we keep saying, just an emergent read. Yeah. Like you said, it launches out of him threatening to kill someone just because his emotions have I'm turned to this volatile acid. I'm gonna cut your throat. And then there's that soul-sickening music that you were just talking about with these slides as he rides to the landowner's house to say he wants to buy it. Tell him I'd like to speak with him, not about drilling. I'll be back in a week. And he sort of rides away menacingly on his horse and then the string orchestra moves first to this pitched percussion and then it gets even drier to being just right. a slapping sound. And I felt like it's him like drying out. It's like his soul mm. drying out and turning into these just dry tendons. The violin is like the sound of the spirit and here it is just turning into this clicking like he is just a creature of business now. Mm -hmm. 
the energy of it combined with the camera work, the camera pushes forward and pulls back. The dance of what's going on is completely foregrounded for the audience and so satisfying to me. All the ways that this movie confirms that it's about its own pattern more than it is about some traditional dramatic balance. I absolutely agree. I was transfixed by this moment when I first saw it. Again, this was not written for this movie. This was written a couple of years before the movie. You have to credit Paul Thomas Anderson with the way that he places it and surrounds it. My ears were caught by what happens right as this piece of music ends. We hear a real train whistle. At the same time, we hear the sound of percussion happening in the real world as Daniel is hammering a stake into the table of the fat cat meeting that he's at. I thought that was just some very nicely deployed editing that the first non-musical sound that we have feels like it is a passageway back into the real world from the music. Yeah, that happened earlier with the sounds of the drill. That happens a number of times in this movie. I think we sort of skipped over the fact that the first cue, that mysterious natural sound of the white noise cluster, is clearly identified in the movie with this buzzing cicada sound that you hear, the sounds of the desert. That's true. The score and the sound design seem aware of each other. It would be wrong Mm -hmm. to say they are aware of each other because I don't think Johnny Greenwood had any sound design instructions given to him, but it was his interest, as we've said. So the next piece of music I think we're going to talk about is the piece of music that bridges us from, I think it was 1911 to 1927. And H.W. grows up and gets married over the course of this piece of music playing. Pretty much a straight arrangement of the prospectors arrive for a string quartet, but the fullness and richness and maturity of a string quartet give a sense of resolution that almost is in tension against the fact that we know it isn't resolved, that in fact all this time is passing and change is happening, and there's this music that encompasses all the change into an emotion that we're already familiar with. Everything that can happen in their lives is part of the same pattern. It's a very powerful effect when you realize that 16 years have just slipped between two chords of this piece. This music knows enough that it doesn't need to stop or turn its head or do anything. It already took those into account. Mm -hmm. And we land at the end of it on the shots of Daniel Plainview now alone in his mansion, but clearly having let some of his sanity go and he's shooting his gun inside his house and he's got a bowling alley and a butler. This is another original composition for the movie. The the title of this cue, can you explain this title to me? It's called Eat Him By His Own Light. I can explain. You can? I can get at least 75% towards explaining it. I'll take it. This is a quotation from Moby Dick in which Herman Melville says, that maybe someone might find it offensive to eat whale meat by the light lit by whale oil, to, so to speak, eat him by his own light. Uh. But then he, in his Melville way, says, oh, but actually this is the way of the world and this is how it should be. Hmm. 
Now, who is being eaten by whose own light here? Why did Johnny Greenwood go to this quote? I don't know, but it's uh, suggestive of themes in the movie, perhaps, okay. to some degree. If you want it to be. The whaling industry, not unlike the petroleum industry here, different kinds of oil, but the oil is providing light somewhere for someone, and someone's innards are being eaten away at. Something like that. Well, that's the feeling that I get from the music is about innards being eaten away, right? It sounds like a deconstruction for sure. Right, well, this is very much a study of that motif that seems to be the organizing motif of the original composition here. Da-da-da-da-da. Right. It's all counterpoint on that. And there's this kind of crazy piano in there this time, along with the strings. To me, it gave this effect of, like, it's a ramshackle kind of echo of that earlier material to kind of match this messy ramshackle house. I don't know if he had the end of the movie and the house in mind when he wrote this. To me, this piano figure is extremely reminiscent of Messiaen. Here, like, this is Messiaen piano prelude. I think Johnny Greenwood must have just wanted to create that sound. It's also interesting the way it's mixed at this part of the movie. It sounds a little like it's echoing through the halls of the house, right? Yeah, it is. It sounds like there's some kind of muting to it. To me, it suggests that it's a gramophone playing in some exactly. faraway parlor in the house that is much too big for the tiny shrunken heart of Daniel Plainview. I was going to make yet another reference to the lobby of the Tower of Terror ride at Disneyland. But. <laughs> Just to toss out a, a little uh, the music theory that goes along with this, you mentioned earlier in that quote from Alex Ross about what's so music classical nerd about Radiohead that they play octatonic scales. You want to hear about octatonic scales? I think it was in our Back to the Future episode. Yes, it was. Talked about what the octatonic scale is. Well, that's a very Messian thing. Messian had this idea about what he called modes of limited transposition, which was his weird way of saying that if you transposed the scale less than an octave, you know, only a third, it would still be the same scale because the scale was made up of small repeating units that it had a kind of inner symmetric repetition to it. And there are a fixed number of these scales of limited transposition, and he numbered them. So one of them is the octatonic scale because it's all full step, half step, whole step, half step. In the Messiaen piece that I just played, it's a different one of his scales. I think it's half, half, whole, half, half, whole, half, half, whole. But in Johnny Greenwood's imitations, he just uses the octatonic scale. A lot of the music in here is octatonic. There's also in, uh, we didn't mention it, but in Prospectors Arrive, toward the end, where we see Eli with his flock, there are octatonic figurations in thirds. And that's a thing that we also talked about when we talked about Phantom Thread. He did a similar thing. Kind of sound of mysterious floating. Yeah. In the piano, right? Yeah, yeah. Frequently piano, I think, because he has these Messiaen pieces in his head. Yeah, and in that earlier scene, this yeah floating piano does come in sort of along with Eli and his ministry. It does offer this sense of something being on a different plane. To me, it made Eli feel kind of other and not of the same earth as the rest of the stuff that's going on. 
And now, sure enough, the last piece of Greenwood's music that is in the movie is at the end of this scene of fractured attempted reconciliation between father and son. The adult H.W. and his interpreter come and see the misanthropic old Daniel Plainview in his office. Bastard from a basket! And as they're leaving, we hear a reprise of that same piece, that Prospector's Arrive piece. And this time it scores flashback images to earlier in the movie when H.W. was young and interacting with his father. It is this very wistful melancholy regathering of the uncertain forces that were being commented on from earlier. I think it's a wonderfully poignant effect. All right, well, as you said, there's no music, but let's talk about the last scene, because there will be blood. The first thing everyone thinks of is the last scene. It's true. It's where there is blood. I will say that uh, even though I certainly don't endorse where Daniel Plainview ends up in this movie. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, oh, good. I know. That's a relief. But I do, to unrelief it, I am pretty sympathetic to hitting Eli Sunday over the head with a bowling pin. That guy is just bad news the whole time. Creeps me out. Yeah, I guess that's another reservation I have about the movie is that Paul Dano is so clearly phony that you don't know exactly what the force of that character is supposed to be. You know, he wasn't originally cast in that part. He was just cast as the brother, and then Anderson decided he wasn't happy with the person who had been cast as Eli Sunday. So they made it into a twin brother. And he said, Paul, maybe you can play both parts, which ends up being very confusing. It is confusing, yeah. Needlessly confusing. Yeah, I'm not sure... Like, the original Upton Sinclair book is making a political statement, like all Upton Sinclair's writings, about the role of these kinds of wheeler dealers in our society. And here it sort of borrows those characters and those themes, but then just makes a Paul Thomas Anderson movie out of it. And I don't really know what to make of Eli Sunday, other than as a kind of a prod to Daniel Plainview. Mr. Daniel? Well, as we've already hinted, the movie ends with kind of a prod to the audience to say, eh? I'm finished. Make something of that, I dare you. The reprise of this, what I still think of as the sound of human artifice, the sound of things being, as I said, gussied up. I don't hear it at all as making that uh, sound. I hear it as so jaded and knowing. Sure, jaded, I'll take. This is a black comedy joke to it as well. And now that you've seen that story, of course the end of that story is ta 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 You have to make sense not just of the music, but of the personality that has such an attitude as to impose this music. And it seems like a very confident personality to me. It seems like a personality that absolutely believes that it does know, but it's mysterious what it knows. <laughs> You know, like we were saying earlier, there's at least some part of humor that is about what the audience knows in relation to what the joke teller knows. Because knowledge is always sort of pointing at itself. Each time you can point at a different metal layer, there's a new joke to be made at that. And 
I think that's sort of similar to the kind of cognitive blatherings that I was doing earlier in this episode about just the apparatus of the human mind and what it is primed to understand and think about, and how both drama and music are satisfying because they tease and tickle those apparati in the brain about what is the relationship between things? What do I understand? What do I expect? For me, my experience of this movie and its music, I kept feeling like the parts of my brain that the music was lighting up corresponded to the parts of my brain that the drama was lighting up in a very fruitful way that made it feel like the drama was sort of happening productively inside my own brain. This movie makes me feel like the alignment of the music, both original and non-original, both kind of quasi-intended to be placed alongside certain images and not, the combined effect of the editing and the spotting and the composition just winds up being a productive stew for my head. I, in the course of doing this show, definitely keep returning to a worry that my sensitivity or my responsiveness to music is diminishing as I get older. I don't know if you have this experience. I don't know how Hmm. particular this is to me, but I definitely think, oh, I used to be so bowled over by things and I couldn't escape from the emotional space that it created. It just was true. And that's why movies were so intensely satisfying. And now... Is it because we're constantly turning it into critical thoughts and that pushes me away from that experience? Or is it because something about getting older just inevitably does it? The theory I have is that it has to do with that as I get older, I I learn more about the world. And so the story of a movie, the actual script and events of a movie end up implying a lot more factual matter to me. Like, when I was eight years old, if you showed me a character and they said, you know, someone murdered my father when I was a kid and now I want to get revenge, I would have been like, okay, uh, and now what happens? And then the music would have told me what that meant. And if it meant something really exciting and fun, I would have thought, okay, that's exciting and fun. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh, all right, that would have done this and that to their psychology. And they probably have these kinds of feelings running all the time inside them. And I, I can't help it. I start drawing conclusions. All of that information creates a narrower kind of narrower constraints on what the music can express and seem true to me. So that's to say I sometimes think like why isn't it why isn't it hitting me harder? Why am I getting in my own way or something? And this movie was so satisfying to me because I didn't get in my way at all. There's something about this form of scoring like there's no possible way that the music could be wrong about the movie because the music is not claiming to match the movie the music is just claiming that it is sincere and true and musically real and that sincerity and truth and musical reality is mine to apply however it passes through me i'm the conduit between the picture and the music the whole artwork is saying whatever happens inside you thumbs up Go with that. Experience it. Mm -hmm. It made me feel really good to think like, yeah, I still love this. Absolutely. And we, I, this show has been accused is maybe too strong a word, but (laughs) noted as being skeptical about contemporary scoring as compared to classic scoring. And uh, I felt like, no, look how much I love this. (laughs) A thing I love about it is that 
It's not an insular thing, the movie. It's not like, well, we have to sound like movies. We have to sound like a movie score. No, it can sound like any music this guy's ever heard. And the music is not, what was, uh, what was Quincy Jones's term? Emotion lotion? It's, yeah. not, it's not there to lubricate some other experience. It's there to be another force. It's a force who's curious and culturally wide ranging and thinking, thinking all the time. And I feel like I'm in such good company. It's such a mm -hmm. socially rewarding place to find myself. Yeah, here, here. And uh, it sounds to me like just like what I was saying. <laughs> yeah, very much, very much. <laughs> you said exactly what I was saying about what this movie is doing to your head. But, but I had to say it myself. It was... I had to say it myself, John. You had to say it about your own head. Yeah. Andy, I'd like to introduce you now to somebody who knows something that we don't know, that maybe if we come to learn, we can find it funny. It is time for The Bucket to come and tell us what our next movie selection is going to be. We had a lively poll on our Patreon where you can vote to determine what the short list of movies that we will consider talking about for next time will be. So it is your turn. So it's my turn. To reach in there. All right. Ooh, and it's creepy this time. Oh, it is creepy. Okay, I've got one. You do? <laughs> I'm nervous because I really don't know and I, I, I haven't even been looking at the list of balls recently, so shock me. All right, Andy. I like this. I think this is a good move for us. We're staying in roughly the same sort of period of time, but in a very different direction. I have got the 2010 score to How to Train Your Dragon by John Powell. Wow, I think that is the shortest uh, year distance between consecutive movies we've ever done. Maybe. I don't know. I think it must be. We've done a lot at this point, but it might be. Three years apart. Three years apart, but also worlds a apart. A universe apart. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, cool. That's fantastic. This is a fun movie, Andy, and it is doing a, <laughs> a much more mainstream and straightforward thing with its music for this rollicking animated movie than we just talked about. But I think there's also going to be a lot to talk about, and John Powell is a real pro at doing that stuff. I look forward to any opportunity to prove to the skeptics that I actually have a really good and affectionate attitude about new movie <laughs> scores. So let's listen to another relatively recent movie score. That sounds great. Yeah, let's do that. Awesome. If you like the show, consider joining us on Patreon, where you can vote in the polls that determine what balls go into the lottery machine. And here bonus episodes. That's right. We've got some cutting room floor snippets from prior episodes, as well as some totally new selections that we covered for our patrons. Like right now, a bonus episode about the score to Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah. Andy talked me into seeing that movie, and then he talked me into doing a bonus episode about it. And uh, you can hear it on Patreon. And we always love hearing from our listeners at scoresettlers at gmail.com. And we're always very flattered if anybody wants to write us a review on any of the places where you can write us a review. It helps other people to find the show. Thanks for listening, everybody. Turned out there was blood, after all. <laughs> Not on this show. We made it through without any blood. Congratulations, Andy. And neither of we made it to the end, and neither of us said... I drink your milkshake. And isn't that wonderful? <laughs> isn't that admirable? Oops. I'll see you next time, John. When I say that I am an oil man, I think you'll agree. Thank you for listening. It's a fun voice to do. Try it for yourself. I promise to do the next episode entirely in this voice. <laughs> I think I'm going to hold you to that, Andy. I'm, I'm not sure, John. I'm not sure. I feel like we're on a ship when you're doing it. Sometimes. I have it sometimes. We'll work on it. We'll work on it before next time. I think I've done it well a couple of the times. <laughs> All right, everyone. Goodbye.
this is my son and partner H double. <laughs> that was a good one. At the beginning of this episode, you should have said, "This is my partner Andy." I, should, I really should. <laughs> <laughs> this is my friend and partner Andy. This is my co-host John. <laughs> We're here to talk about the great film scores.